Point of View podcast. Um, as you know, I'm Obel, and today this episode is going to be so much more interesting for me because we're going to um, dig deeper into the psychological issues that goes on and the systemic racism that's happening right now in our country and how we can manage it and how we can move forward. But if you guys watch our last episode, you know that we had former um, police officer Antonio who kind of told us the ugly truth. Um, about what goes on in the police system. And along with him today is going to be a clinical social worker, and I'm excited for her to be with us today. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them. We do have both of them sitting with us, and I'm excited for them to be a part of this um, episode and to kind of dig deep, deeper into our issues that we're having or currently facing in our country. And so I will have them have the floor. I'll start with you, Antonio. You give us, you know, a little background about who you are again, and then we'll go ahead and with Shaquita. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me back. Uh, I started out in law enforcement a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and I spent 20 years in law enforcement, and I retired, I thought, for good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I got back into it and did another five years here in Texas. I did 20 years as a municipal police officer mm-hmm. in the Northeast, and I can't tell you any more than that, remember, because I don't want people to try to pinpoint exactly the community <laughs> I policed in based on the things that we talk about. Mm-hmm. At, you know, it's something that um, I've been very passionate about since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and Actually, everything that's going on and the reason why we're sitting down having this conversation, I've been waiting for this literally for for decades. Wow. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we do have this beautiful young lady. Well, I should say young lady because you still look young, whatever your age is. I'm not going to put you out there. Shaquita Gibson, thank you so much for being on. And can you tell us a little bit more about you and tell our audience, you know, a little thing special things about you and what makes you so passionate about this topic. Sure. Well, Bella, first I want to thank you for inviting me here. Um, Definitely feel privileged. Um, Again, my name is Shaquita. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And um, basically what that is is that I provide mental health services to people that may be struggling with anxiety, depression, or other challenges. Um, I also have a background in education. I'm a former educator for 11 years. And I'm very passionate about helping people, and that's how I essentially got involved in this type of work. Kind of growing up, um, I'm a 70s baby, Mm. and so at the time that I was growing up, you know, I dealt with a lot of uh, backlash due to affirmative action. Um, I tended to attend primarily um, white schools, and Mm. so issues that deal or pertain to race are very important to me and I'm very passionate about. And so just one last note, and so I'm also currently um, in the process of doing some research on uh, prison reentry programs. And so my uh, research for my doctoral program um, emphasis is race and incarceration, and so that's pretty much why I'm here. 
Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful introduction. <laughs> I couldn't say it better. And guys, if you guys can hear in, in the background, we do have some protesters outside. Mm -hmm. We're in Dallas. And this is so relevant. It's kind of like yeah. emotional at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But we do have protesters in the back screaming Black Lives Matter. And as we do know. But as you guys know already, mm -hmm. on our podcast, The Point of View, we like to do a quote of the week so that we can reflect on it and we can kind of share our thoughts. And today, our quote of the week says... Racism is a psychological warfare. Racists try to manipulate us and change our behavior by creating hate, discrimination, and division in society. Rise above the fray, says Carlos well, Wallace. What do you guys think about that quote? Well, it kind of reminds me of the many conversations yeah. uh, that we've had uh, actually trying to define racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do have a definition, a, a working definition, is that right? Yeah, yeah okay. Okay. Working definition. However, uh, when, when we're ready, I'll share a story that will describe, I think, systemic racism better than me just simply defining it. Okay. Uh, but yeah. it is something, I'll, I'll be honest with you, mm -hmm. I am uh, surprised that more people uh, who are black and brown mm -hmm can't really understand or identify racism. Wow. And in particular, the young, younger generation. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think they can be educated on this. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason why they don't understand it is because we have not spent the time to educate uh, people on racism. What mm -hmm. does that mean mm -hmm. uh, in the history of racism, particularly in this country? Right, right, thank you. Would you want to add to that, Shaquita? Well, definitely, definitely. Just to add my um, just short point that, you know, when you mentioned that racism is, you know, psychological warfare, mm -hmm. um, I can definitely agree to that because from a mental standpoint, mm -hmm. if you can, you know, control someone's mind or control someone's thinking, you know, in a sense that can be something that can be, you know, passed on, you know, um, generationally because people tend to pass on the beliefs and the perspectives of those that, you know, do the controlling. So I definitely agree with that. Wow. Yes, definitely. And Antonio, I do have a question for you for, I mean, for someone who's been in the force for so long. Um, right now, there are a lot of people chanting, you know, outside of Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. to def um, defund the police. And, mm -hmm. you know, because of what all that's going on, do you both feel like it's necessary? I'll start with you because, you know, you've been in the mm -hmm. force for so long. Do you feel like that's something that is necessary for us to kind of start with that change when it comes to systemic racism? I think that's just the beginning. <laughs> the issues are so broad, so mm -hmm. it, it is not something where you can do one thing. Mm -hmm. There's no app for this. We don't hit like one button and it just gets better. Okay. We're talking about something that really started 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what will it take to start to unravel a system that started 400 years ago, mm. and that's really been going strong ever since. Mm -hmm. So defunding, to me, means that you take money away from, well, law enforcement, but we also should be looking at the entire criminal justice system, okay. not just from law enforcement. Right. That's just a really almost, it's an important part, but it is not, as big a part of the entire system as we may think. So prisons, courts, right. uh, there are a lot of different uh, 
parts of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And if we just look at defunding the police, I think we're, we're missing the point. Wow. Wow. Well said. And I, I do know that right now it's so sad to say that with all of this that's going on, that a police officer had the, I want to say, the audacity to even, you know, murder another, you know, person of color or I should say another black person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now that all of this is happening and, you know, they... Finally, I should say, he got his charges. He, you know, he was charged with felony assault or, you know, the proper term. But do you guys think that all police officers should kind of um, also get that same or should be, how should I say, charged or should also be punished? That's the word for their wrongful death or for wrongful death in mm -hmm. our community. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they should also, like the other officers that's been you know, involved in other crimes, should they also get that consequence? Should they pay for their actions in the same way? What, what's your thought on that? Because... Well, and, and you know, I did the job for a long, long time. Yeah. And I pulled my gun out a lot. Okay. I pointed my gun at people a lot. Okay. <laughs> I had guns pointed at me. Mm. And I'm not saying that every police officer should do it quite this way. Mm -hmm. But even when someone pulls a gun on you, mm. it still may not be the right time to shoot someone, believe yeah. it or not. And right. it's a very technical thing. But I'll say this, to answer your question directly, yes, we need to, police officers ha have to be held accountable okay. for their actions. Okay. There are rules of engagement, if you will, and I'm using that term mm -hmm. because this is almost like warfare, mm -hmm. it seems, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Police officers are taught when to use force, when to use deadly force, okay. when it is legal to do it. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the moral question. Mm. When I had guns pointed at me, legally I could have shot them dead. Mm -hmm. But morally, it wasn't the right thing to do because I thought still in the moment I had other options. Wow. And because of the way I valued life, mm -hmm. at the time, it did not seem like it was the right thing to do. Okay. But police officers have to follow the law, yeah. right? So they can't just go out and shoot people. And it is not as, um, let, let's put it this way. When you're taught how to use or when to use deadly force, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear. You, you can't pass the, get through the academy okay. without understanding the law on deadly force. But what we're seeing is something different. What we're seeing with these deadly shootings has nothing to do with better training. Mm. We're not understanding the law. Right, right. And, you know, for a clinical, um, you know, social worker, do you believe that the police are actually, how they are handling that? Do you, can you tell me if you think there is a psychological um, problem that's probably going on within them or is it just plain racism? And also, do you think that the ones that are, you know, with all that's going on, how are police officers handling that? You know, with the protests and the good ones, or you know, the the people that have the good morals, the police officers mm -hmm. that do have the good morals. How is that? You know, how is that looking psychologically for them? Can I can I take yeah. that first part? That's a very complex question when you ask about you know the underlying roots of it because you know ultimately we can't ignore 
um, the role that, you know, negative characterization plays and we can't undermine the role of, you know, racism mm -hmm. and its um, social and cultural influence in terms of our values and our beliefs. And so mm -hmm. when you have people that have been socialized in a sense to a Eurocentric perspective, Eurocentric values, Eurocentric culture, mm -hmm. And um, when you think about historically how we've been viewed in this country, you know, mm -hmm. black people have been portrayed as being criminals right. and very animalistic in a sense in terms of our perceptions. And unfortunately, those things tend to get passed down from generation. You know, policies don't necessarily change people's perspectives and change doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that, you know, culture um, plays a part mm -hmm. in, you know, how those interactions play out. Mm -hmm. um, and just to also add this next piece in terms of what Antonio was saying, there is a need for, you know, increased accountability. And about the question about defunding the police, you know, he's right. It's a start. But when you think about the bigger problem, there are so many other areas that need to be addressed. And definitely our prisons is a good place to start when you're thinking of the economics of it and how much money is kind of funneled into our prisons mm -hmm. versus how much money is funneled into our police departments mm -hmm. in terms of where you can make the biggest impact and change. Wow. Definitely. And, and if I can just say something about the sure, economic yeah. part of this. Mm -hmm. I spent 20 years as a municipal police officer okay. and had a really good pension at the end of 20 years. And a pension in this case means that the city will give me a check every month right. for the rest of my life. Right. There's no account like a 401k. It won't run out. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's... And I'm not talking about $10,000 a year. I'm talking a pretty decent amount of money that I get from the city for life. Wow. So there are some great economic incentives mm -hmm. for keeping a system like this going. Yeah. Wow, this is this is pretty interesting. I want to dive in into statistics. According to NAACP, we see that um, six point out of six point eight million correctional you know population, the black incarcerated are five times more than white. And we see with blacks and Hispanics, they um, take up thirty two percent. Mm -hmm. you know, of the U.S. population, but yet they take up 50, they are 56% um, in the, you know, in the jail or prison system. And it's sad to say that even, you know, if they were incarcerated at the rate of white males or, you know, white people, the prison or the jail population would have decreased by about 40%. You know, that statistics is pretty ugly because mm -hmm. it's like it shows you point blank the racism that goes on mm -hmm. within those systems. And how do you think that has impacted our community, our black community specifically? Can I take that one? Yes, of course. This okay. is for you, Shaquita. I love that. <laughs> There's a lot there. Well, you know that um, when you look at statistics that, you know, report that, you know, one in three black males will have spent some time in their lives in prison, you know, that's a significant percentage. And mm -hmm. so when you think about that many number of black men entering our jails and prisons, and when you think about what happens in prison mm -hmm. in terms of the violence, in terms of the disparate conditions, what tends to happen is, is that, you know, prisons tend to become the institutions of socialization in our community, hmm. if that makes sense. So, 
when you have that many people entering, you can have someone who has a father, a brother, a uncle, a cousin that's all been incarcerated. Yeah. So what tends to happen is, you know, when people leave prison, they bring those values and norms that are associated with prison back to the community. Right. And we know that that's dysfunctional. And a lot of times they bring the psychological, um, the psychological, um, in a sense, the, the toll and the um, impact with them. Yeah. And so it affects communities and that they're not prepared to, you know, in a sense, um, integrate into their families to take on the roles that they, you know, may have previously had as right. a father, as a husband, as mm -hmm. a, um, as a son and to do that effectively and to be able to function with the current challenges that they face with just, you know, in a sense, acclimating back to being in the community. So right. it, it definitely has a disparate impact on our community. Would you like to add to that? You know, because I have another question that follows up with a thought that goes, you know, as you were speaking, mm -hmm. I mean, I have so many thoughts going right. through my mind. And, and, and one is that this is such an old problem. Right. We've been in chains for a long, long time. Mm -mm -mm. And it's not a coincidence that mm -hmm. we have about two million people who are incarcerated in this country. I think. We are the highest for any industrialized country. Yes. And I, you may know better than me, or you may have seen some recent stats on people who are still owing time to the system. Mm -hmm. So two million may be incarcerated. However, I think it's somewhere around four to six million yes. that are still involved with the criminal justice system. Right, yeah. That's a significant number of largely men, but don't forget also that we have a significant number of women also yes. doing time. And it's sad to say, I mean, obviously it's obvious mm. that it's more black women yes. doing time than white, you know, white yes. women. Do you guys think that it has something to do with um, court appointed lawyers? Do you feel like that hinder us? You know, it, does it hinder the black community? I Do think you feel like, I know a, probably a lawyer will probably have to come on this podcast and give me a little bit more detail on that. But you guys, I mean, this is just something that I've been inquiring. So, no, it's not. There are a lot of things that happened before that. Okay. It started in 1619. Okay. When they brought the first 20 to 30 Africans here to this, to this continent mm -hmm. to start American slavery, right? So, when you have a system mm -hmm. that you put in place, mm -hmm. and the system means that things are gonna work a certain way. Right. Right? So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time understanding what is, you know, conceptualize what a system means in this case. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the way it works, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And so we have not been able to, even the Civil War, where we lost about 660 thousand Americans, hmm. they killed each other to keep the system going. Wow. This is how one yeah. side was so intent on keeping this going that mm -hmm. they sacrificed about 330,000 of their men, countless others who were injured permanently. Hmm. And, and it did, the system did not end then, right? Yeah. At the end of the Civil War. A lot of people like to think that was such a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Man, that slavery thing, yeah. such a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Right after the Civil War ended, they, they put in place another system. Mm. <laughs> they said, well, we can't have slavery. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to give you this other thing. Other thing, yeah. And this other thing is where I think a lot of people uh, are, have a hard time understanding. So slavery seems like it was so long ago, 
this other thing could not have been that bad. Not as bad as slavery. Hmm. But that's why we're talking about this in 2020, because indeed it was bad, arguably just as bad as slavery. The only difference is uh, that you had a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. But as we just talked about stats, two mm -hmm. million people still incarcerated and maybe four to six million who are still on paper mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. And if you look at wealth as brown and black people in this country, we are about 100 to 150 years behind in terms of where we should be when we talk about wealth. That's another program, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Wow. Thank you for diving into that. But now the, the problem is, you know, they are, like you said, it, it, it is a system that is forcing them to kind of still be in chains mm -hmm. and we're not free mentally because this is still affecting us in our communities. And now systemic racism, I don't know, what would it look like individually and, you know, in our families or in our communities? Would you like to tell us about how that can impact us psychologically? Like systemic racism is so big, it, it, it's, you know, pretty yeah. much spread out everywhere in our lives and it affects us individually. It affects us in our families, you know, mm -hmm. black families, you know, in the community. So how would you see that, you know, to, well, to set this up for you like we had talked about, do you mind if I share my story now? Yes, I think you okay, should definitely okay. share your story. Okay. Okay. Yes, all definitely. Right. We're all ears. So I, I kind of thought about that. I, when you say, hey, let's do another one, I, mm -hmm. as soon as you said, let's do another one, I started, started to think about mm -hmm. what I, I need to really, you know, I have a lot of things. We all have a lot of things that happen to us throughout our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to pinpoint those moments when it's more critical than the, uh, any other moment. Yeah. But I want to share with you something that happened uh, 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about this more and more mm -hmm. in preparing for this podcast today. Yeah. And so we, we my, my family and I had just moved to Texas. Mm -hmm. We'd been here a couple of years. Just to give you a little background, I was married to someone who... Uh, is a, a nurse. Mm -hmm. uh, she got her nursing degree. Uh, right out of nursing school, she went into ICU, mm -hmm. the intensive care unit, which mm -hmm. is like a nurse, uh, like a police officer coming out of the academy right. and going into SWAT. Mm -hmm. It's just not something that you do very often, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, she had to be very capable. Right. right? Moved to Texas. She did adult ICU, mm -hmm. where we moved from. Mm -hmm. Moved to Texas, she did pediatric ICU. Mm -hmm. And she got recognized for her good work. Mm -hmm. So it was a newsletter mm -hmm. and with her picture in it, my daughter, and they would post that. Mm -hmm. And some of her coworkers would tear that down. She found notes mm -hmm. about immigration and Negro jokes. This is in a Texas hospital. Right. And so, she said to herself one day, why don't I invite some of my coworkers over to my home? Hmm. Get to know me a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So we did that and provided dinner. And about a week later, we got a letter in the mail that I would love to share with you. Wow. I have to put my specs on that. Go ahead. Okay. Please share it. And it said, I have a copy of it here too. So there's a real letter. Uh, you need to stop all illegal activities. Now, they were aware that I had just 
retired from a career in law enforcement. Okay. And they knew she, obviously, is a nurse. Right. right. <clears throat> a policeman's salary uh, and a nurse's salary does not justify your lifestyle. You and your family better watch your back, you niggers. Wow. Welcome to Texas. <laughs> wow. That was our welcome. So I called the police. I get an officer who showed up. And when we shared the letter with him, he kind of like smirked. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I wasn't in a smirking mood. Yeah. <laughs> and so he did a report. I'd like to share a little bit about what he said in his report. Go it won't ahead. take me very long, just a couple of sentences. So I made contact with Antonio's wife, uh, who stated that she was working at the Children's Hospital and that a racially motivated letter was left in the nurse's station. Uh, and she is the only uh, African-American uh, female that works there. Mm -hmm. Antonio seems to believe that it possibly could be a coworker of his wife, the one who sent the letter, you think? Wow. After sharing that she yeah. had experienced some things at work. Yeah. Weeks later, I get a call from the investigator, mm -hmm. who I swear to you, talked down to me. He talked to me like, instead of doing 20 years in law enforcement, I had just done a 20-year bid. Oh my God. In prison. So, he, so he, it's like, you, okay, so you, he, did he know you were a police officer? Yes. Okay. Because the other officer put it right in the report. And so I wasn't really feeling it. So I went down to the police department mm. to be heard. Mm -mm -mm. And I had a very, uh, let's say, spirited conversation with the supervisor mm -hmm. while the investigator was in that same space and could hear me because they, I was not going to allow that investigator to talk to me that way. That way, right. So we asked that they dust for prints, do an investigation. They did not contact anyone at the hospital. They did not dust for prints because you would see it on the letter. Mm. So we had the, this was brought to her manager's attention. Yeah. It was brought to the police department's attention. And when we talk about systemic, mm -hmm. I thought this was an example of what we meant by systemic. It, right. it is in a, a part of everything that we do. Yeah. This is a hospital system. Yeah. Takes care of our kids, yeah. in this case. Takes care of us as adults. And these are some of the folks that are working there in the police department. Someone with my background to be treated the way I was treated, I can only imagine how other people are treated as well. Exactly. So I have to share one thing that, this last thing, where I asked my ex for this because I didn't have this, so she texted me, hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. Okay. Said, believe it or not, this action of taking pictures and sending it made me cry. I felt traumatized all over again. Mm. Yeah. It's very powerful. This is so, like, this is so sad. I don't even know how to even address that right now. Yeah. You know, um, Antonio provided a, a perfect example of systemic racism. And so yeah. um, ultimately, you know, what systemic racism is, is the, the practices, the policies that tend to privilege whiteness mm -hmm. and to disadvantage um, underrepresented racial groups. Mm -hmm. So what tends to happen is, is that, you know, this is trickled down to the criminal justice system, you know. And so in his case, 
the unspoken practices is that, you know, we don't take these type of reports seriously. Yeah. And so on a personal level, you know, it makes it difficult to keep asking for help when the help isn't really there. And so you mentioned the part about wanting to connect the psychological with, you know, the systemic racism. Yeah. Well, you know, the the psychological piece is the trauma. You know, oftentimes when we speak of racism, we look at it as a thing or an act, but we don't think of it as as, as traumatizing. Right. That, you know, racism is can be hostility, racism can be violence. Whether it be psychological violence, whether it be verbal violence or physical violence, it's still traumatizing. And so so often we get so accustomed to experiencing this type of trauma and it happens so frequently because it is systemic, mm -hmm. it just makes it difficult to confront that, you know, as an individual, you know, in a healthy way. So oftentimes we do shut down and we find other ways to deal with it, whether it be internalizing it, trying to deal with it within our own families. But um, I think that was a great example of, you know, what it looks like on an individual level. And on a yeah. community level, when yeah. you mentioned that part, what it looks like is, is that people stop reaching out for help when they need it. You know, one frequent complaint, or if you will, that I frequently hear about people in the black community is, they don't call the police, they don't report things. I was going to go right back to that because I actually had a you know similar incident that I will not get into because this is not about me. I, I want you guys to really kind of express more about it. And I think that's very important because now in our community, it's a lot of people like, you know, even in movies, they joke about it, but it's mm -hmm. a real thing. Mm -hmm. You don't call the police if you need help. You just handle it yourself. Exactly. And it's like... The reason behind it is not just a black thing. It's really the systemic racism that we've been dealing with for so many years. Where if you are asked, if you are asking for help as a civilian, you are not. You feel like you don't even have the right mm -hmm. to be protected the way you should be. Exactly because of your skin, and it's it's just so sad and and it's very sick to me. It's extremely sick, and it's. Now, what I'm what I'm really curious about, have you dealt with men that's been incarcerated and you see how the system is set up when they come out, it's less likely for them to have a job. You know, oh, even I if they're innocent, they've dealt with so much trauma inside or mm -hmm. outside or from, you know, during their time. When they come out, it's like, how are they able to function normally and, you know, in that environment where, okay, am I welcome? You know, mm -hmm. because now I don't even have the right to vote. I don't have the right to kind of, you know, find a normal, decent job to provide for myself or if I have a family mm -hmm. that needed my help. You know, all of that. How does that, you know, play a role into how our community is kind of, you know, it's not really growing. But how is that how you feel like this is affecting them personally and how, you know, have you dealt with that in a mm -hmm. clinical setting? How does that look like? Because I know that they can also develop some psychological issues, you know, while they're in there. So how does that look like? Well, what it looks like is, is that, um, you know, you're absolutely correct. When people are released from prison, they face um, difficulties with kind of reintegrating due to felony disenfranchisement, mm -hmm. you know, policies. And so it makes it difficult for people to be able to rent. It makes it difficult for people to obtain employment because of the stigma of incarceration. And, you know, when you add into that, you know, the 
the racism part of it mm -hmm. in terms of the negative characterizations. And the reason why I reference particularly black males is that 93% of people incarcerated are men. Right. So um, although women do face these challenges as well, you know, there are more men that are being released from prison. And so um, you have the race aspect of it where, you know, when you go out and apply for jobs, the mm -hmm. reality is, is that, you know, people tend to hire people that look like them. People tend to promote people that look like them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't look like them, then you're not really in a position to where you can take advantage of the same opportunities. And then you have the stigma of incarceration over you on top of that. Hmm. So it makes it very difficult. So um, I have to kind of look at this from um, a, um, a different standpoint in that what it looks like for black males is different than what it looks like for white males. And that's important because oftentimes when black males are released back to the communities, you know, people are released back to broken communities yeah. that don't necessarily have the resources to provide them the support they need. Mm -hmm. Not saying that, you know, there aren't, you know, white men who have fallen victim to incarceration that are from impoverished communities. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the, the family dynamic, the network and the support that's available, mm -hmm. it's different. Right. So it makes it more difficult and it's more psychologically distressing for people that encounter that type of discrimination and have to deal with that stigma to try to, in a sense, you know, create a life for themselves with absolutely very little support or help. Right. And that's why you can see that they're most likely to become homeless, you know, 10, mm -hmm. you know. I guess 10 times more likely to be homeless uh, as, you know, black males. And also I, I you I feel like they kind of walk with that anger, internalized anger. It's it's just, you know, plays a role all of that mentally. And sometimes you think, okay, they're their behavior into the society. Let's say someone was innocent, they'd be in prison and they come mm -hmm. out and they have that psycholo psychological distress. And mm -hmm. sometimes what hurts the most is that they're not even able to reach out for mental health um, professionals to kind of help them out because it's like, you know, what's the point of life? Because mm -hmm. now I'm just back into a society where I'm not able to even function properly. And you see that, you know, I don't remember his name. Oh, Lord, I should probably should have searched this, but the guy who hung himself when he refused to sign a plea deal, and then when he went back, I think that was, that was in New York, I'll put the name if, I, if it'll come back to me, mm -hmm. and he went back home and he hung himself, you know, because it's like he's been in there and he was innocent, he refused to sign the plea deal, and he had to serve time, and when they finally released him, you know, he had to hang himself because it was... I think I remember that case of, out of New York. Yeah, yes, it's yeah. New York. It was a crazy case. Now I know you mentioned you all. You was also in education, which is mm -hmm. also pleasant because <laughs> now how I feel like this question would be extremely interesting. How are we? I think we just saw. We just watched a video prior to this podcast of a mm -hmm. six-year-old who got arrested with a zip. Um, I think that was called. But she was having a temper tantrum in the school system, just apparently just called the police. And the police came and she was, you know, quietly, you know, I guess according to the video, she was sitting quietly by the time they arrived. And they still put her in handcuffs and just said if she was even, you know, older, she would have been in normal handcuffs. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like, and now how do you trust your teachers and school system to kind of teach your their, your kids about racism when this is yeah. this is happening and I don't know what you think is that even legal <laughs> for you to call the police on a six-year-old girl like a six-year-old period so if I'll take the legal part if you don't mind first sure. yeah. okay so yes in that particular instance 
and that was a Florida case, I recall. Right? Yes, it was in Florida, Orlando, Florida. The state of Florida, now remember this is Florida, mm -hmm. gave, uh, the legislature gave law enforcement officers permission to arrest kids that young. In Texas, you can arrest kids as young as 10. Okay. So a 10 year old can be placed in handcuffs if, if the officer believes it's necessary. Now, you're not gonna go to an adult jail, but the fact is that it's still an arrest, right? right? So the report is gonna be a little different, but it's still an arrest report. Mm -hmm. And I was a school resource officer for a few years, and I'll be honest with you, I have arrested probably on average about eight students a year. So probably about 24 wow. kids under the age of 14 uh -huh. that I arrested because the state of Texas told me I had to. Wow. Mm. And that's something that's, so do you wanna address the psychological aspect of that and how does that play, you know, how do you, the teachers now go and tell their, you know, how are they teaching in school about racism? If you have a white teacher now telling your black child, you know, how racism work, or are they even telling them about you know, what racism is really about. And I know our school system is not really teaching our kids about African-American history to mm -hmm. begin with. So, I mean, or is it, at least if they are an elective. <laughs> so <laughs> so what, what exactly are, you know, what, how does that even, play? I mean, how can we change that? How, how, how do you see that getting better? Well, um, just to address the first part. So when you, um, mentioned the part about, you know, teaching about racism, you know, when you think about that, you know, is racism being taught? And so when I was in school, um, well, just let me just say this, you know, our educational system right now that's been in place has been pretty much the same for the past 100 years, mm -hmm. 100 to 150 years. And so when you think about the curriculums that are in place, a lot of those curriculums have been, in a sense, influenced by the Old South mm. and by those that wanted to keep in place the Old South. And so um, what tends to happen is, is that our educational curriculum tends to be very Eurocentric focused. So it focuses on Eurocentric, you know, uh, leaders, policies, values, and perspectives. And so those things tend to get reinforced. Okay. And so from a psychological standpoint, you know, it's difficult, especially, you know, as an as a early age when there are not, um, when there's not a culture per se that is, um, or perspective or an identity that is displayed in, um, and I'll say an accurate light if I'll say that. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about, you know, school curriculums, it tends to kind of promote this uh, sense of, and I know this may be somewhat kind of harsh the way I'm saying it, but kind of white pride. Mm. It tends to promote that to a degree. And so it makes it difficult for people that, you know, may be brown or black to find a sense of identity in that when they're missing from that story or when the story is told or the history is provided in such an unlimited way, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a balance to that. When you think about, you know, black history being an, an integral part of American history mm -hmm. and how our country was founded and how we've come to have this democracy today, we've been a, a very instrumental part of that. Mm -hmm. And so for us not to have that focus in the curriculum and for us to be able to see ourselves in the curriculum, it makes it difficult to have that sense of identity yeah. and that sense of pride and, it, and, and honestly, to have that sense of esteem about it, mm -hmm. you know. It, it, 
you know, what comes to mind also is in, in the black and brown community, when it comes to mental health, we're told to suck it up. Hmm. Yeah. That mental health, getting seeking mental health right. services is for white people, let's be honest. Right. That's, that's right. you know, black and brown folks, we don't do that. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, um, it's interesting that you say that. I know I may be kind of going off grid a little bit, but, okay. you know, okay. when I think about our position historically in this country, um, when we've, you know, in a sense, a, a, attempted to petition or protest for our rights, you know, mm -hmm. the response has generally been that we just don't appreciate what we have. And so in a mm. sense, we've been told to kind of suck it up and deal with it. So this isn't something that, you know, from a cultural perspective within our community, I believe that, you know, originated, I believe because of our standing in this country and our continuous plight said equality mm -hmm. and you know we get a step forward in the the message or the or the you know, the message that that's in a sense kind of um reinforced is is that we're asking for too much you know yeah. you you know you you have enough be satisfied and so when you when you think about it we're kind of taught not really taught but kind of conditioned in a sense that right. you know you got to deal with it and when the sense we had to right mm -hmm. right you know when you think about the types of circumstances you know um African-American people have had to deal with, mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better phrase, you didn't have time to be depressed. Mm. <laughs> you didn't have time Sounds... to be depressed. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, we are kind of seeing the, the consequences of that. Yeah. And um, to, to kind of um, go into detail, I, I remember you mentioned on our last podcast, how, you know, how we can kind of help with active shooters and you see how they handle that situation when it comes to, you know, most of the active shooters that have been, you know, shooting in, into schools, they're white. And when they face with the consequences, oh, well, they're probably sick, you know, mm -hmm. they're mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And if let's say, you know, that were to happen to a black obviously a black person, it would have been totally different. We're binting as animals and, you know, it will be like, oh my gosh, this person has a bad behavior, like bad behaviors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how, do you want to elaborate on how you would um, see that kind of take a shift into, you know, like how would that change or how would you see change in that area when it comes to, you know, active shooters? In, in terms in schools, of... In schools. In yeah. terms of how we... View them, yes. How we view based them. on their race, right? So, she's. I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You're itching. You're itching. I can tell. <laughs> no, no. Um, I wasn't going to address. I wasn't going to address the act of shooter part. Okay. But when you think about the negative sting, the stigmatization of people in our community, mm -hmm. you know. Um, when you look at, you know, people that have, you know, historically used crack cocaine, you know, mm. were criminalized, whereas, you know, people that are caught up in the opioid crisis, you right. know, were people that needed help. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about, you know, crime in, you know, um, impoverished communities, you know, predominantly minority black communities or minority communities, you know, when children, you know, get killed, that doesn't become necessarily a, a national crisis. Whereas, you know, when we think about school shootings, then we have our gun, you know, we have our gun le legislation proposals and we have more of a national outcry for attention. Hmm. And so I think that, you know, when you were mentioning the part about how do we change that, I think, was that the question? In yes. terms of mm -hmm. yes. in terms of how do we change that? Right. I think we're, all, we're already starting to change that. And I think, you know, what's happening currently is speaking to the times and that, you know, when you think about, you know, people, us as a, as a, as a, as a human, I guess, human race, um, in the past, we didn't have that compassion. 
for people that were um, victimized or people that were um, killed. But now I'm seeing more of an acknowledgement that, you know, we're human beings in a right. sense. So it's not just this person's a criminal. And we do have those, you know, people in our, in our society that will tend to take, for example, George Floyd, want to focus on some type of criminal background, or mm -hmm. Ahmaud Aubrey want to focus on some type of criminal background, but this is about human beings. Right. And I think that, you know, in this space that we're in right now, we have the opportunity to have the conversation so we can take control of the narrative and change that, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. And now you have the floor. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, oh no, you. I learned something. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, so, you know, what we, again, we, we're going to talk about that R word, racism, yes. right? So what we're really talking about is how do you change people who were taught or conditioned to view people that look like the folks in this room a certain way? Mm. Um, I can't remember who said this, but ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I am getting exhausted. I don't know about you guys, yeah. but I have to do a lot of explaining. Right. <laughs> okay? Go and ahead, so, brother. you know, I, I'm interested in the people who are willing or who understand that it, it's wrong, that they don't have to be taught or told it's wrong. Mm and people that we can partner with. And there mm -hmm. are plenty of people that we can partner with, by the way, who get it. Yeah. We see them out there protesting right. and, um, you know, they, I work with them uh, politically. So they're there. Uh, now, when it comes to the active shooter, mm -hmm. I always have to bring some bad news. Go ahead. We're here so, to handle it all. There was a time when we believed that everyone went or walked around with a gun. Right? Mm -hmm. We watched movies when we were growing up. Maybe not so much you. <laughs> they changed. Okay. And so we, there were, you know, cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, uh, of course, the Indian was a bad guy, by the way. <laughs> um, and, and, and people walked around, white males mm -hmm. walked around with guns. That's not true. That's Hollywood. Mm. So there weren't all these guns and people walking around you know, like a cowboy all day long. Wow. In many cases, if you, you went to a small town right. uh, or a town, you had to check your gun with the sheriff. Hmm. And so we think that guns have been around. It's just part of our culture mm -hmm. and the numbers that we have them today. Mm -hmm. There wasn't that long ago when there was this little gun called a Saturday Night Special, and it was a revolver with a two-inch barrel was a snub nose, so it's easy to conceal. And that was like, ooh, if you were carrying one of those, then you're dangerous. Wow. And you're, not messed, you're not meant to be messed with. Or right. <laughs> and now uh, we understand that you, with your background, could go into a gun shop and apply for a permit for a fully automatic weapon. Mm -hmm. Fully automatic means you pull the trigger once and all of your bullets come out at the same time with one pull of the trigger. Wow. And most people would believe that that is illegal. It is not illegal. You have to have the right permit for it. Okay. And it doesn't mean they have to be in the military or police. Okay. Average citizens. There's a great video. They have a, a club in Arizona. You can YouTube this. Okay. Where they actually go out there and show all the different guns and they blow things up and mm -hmm. shoot all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Long story short is today, let's take the state of Texas, we have about 50 million guns just in the state of Texas. So you would probably think, well, we got a lot of people in Texas. Well, we have about 22, 23 million people total. That includes kids. Mm -hmm. And only 40%, up to 40% of households actually have a gun in it. So we're talking about 50 million guns in the state of Texas alone mm -hmm. in the hands of about 40% of the population. Now, why do they need all those guns? Well, the gun industry, gun lobby, got those guns into the hands of a specific demographic okay. when the Supreme Court, although they said it twice before, that no, you can't own a gun just because you want one. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until Scalia, who's now deceased, Supreme Court Justice, said yes, that that law changed. And the gun lobby then started to target a certain demographic, and it wasn't African-American males. Okay. I can tell you that. Wow. Okay? And so all of a sudden, these guns start pouring into... Uh, our community. So countrywide, uh, we have about 350 million guns, again, in the hands of about 40% of households. So you tell me in terms of whether or not this means something. Hmm. I'm just giving you the information. You can come to your own conclusion. Hmm. Wow, this is, this, is, this is heavy. Yeah, this is heavy. <sighs> I want to say that does this have to do with, you know, southern states being, I should say that you, you can, it's like, well, if you work, and it, it's, I don't want to, this is, this is just quote unquote, I don't want to, you know, say things, but it almost appear as if they're trying to say, well, you can have this, and if you encounter somebody that is a threat to you, basically just deal with them accordingly. Because it's 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 almost as if they get to protect themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because they have majority of of the white population has access to it. Mm -hmm. You can say, but I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people in Texas now they own mm -hmm. a gun. But you can you can definitely know that majority of them are going to be white. So now they're more they they have that more accessible to them for mm -hmm. people of color when they encounter them. It almost as if it's easy for you to take a life. It's not now. It's, it's not even a police officer that needs to do it because we see our different cases that's going on right now. So it's... Well, let, and let, let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about gun violence. Right. Um, I think more of us are learning about Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in 1921. Yes. I want us all to learn more mm -hmm. because they're getting ready in July to start to excavate what they believe may be mass graves. Mm -hmm. It is one story mm -hmm. in our story during... Uh, the so-called Jim, Jim Crow yes. era. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into that because it'll take up another segment. <laughs> okay. However, um, almost, or, or they believe about 300 people were killed during that massacre. They actually used a, what they call a Tommy gun. <laughs> the old gun where you kind of mm -hmm. crank it like this and you do this and the bullets come out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first kind of automatic weapon, I guess, okay. used in World War I. Mm -hmm. We are a very violent culture, mm -hmm. but it's always been violence really to control a certain other demographic. So that is to say, this is a true story. I had someone come in and put more secure locks on my door because I knew I was going to do this podcast. I may need more security. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> However, well, I mean, he, do what you have to do to protect your life. We need you. <laughs> 
he was honest, my locksmith, in mm -hmm. sharing with me the guns he had because when the government gets out of control, he was ready. This is a guy who was just there to put my locks in. He's very candid about why he has guns. I work with someone who said his mom has about a hundred guns. His mother. So I hope Thanksgiving goes well over at his home, by the way, because uh, I don't want to see her get upset. Yeah. But th there's, a, there's something going on that we need to be aware of. Yeah. And that it's not this little innocent, oh, it's my right to have guns kind of thing. There's more to it than that. To it than that. Yeah. Wow, that's that's extremely it's crazy. That's crazy to think about. It's crazy to think about. Wow, we've we've dived into so many, you know, so many subjects when it comes to racism. Now I'm just kind of curious. How do you guys see change coming about? I know right now we're protesting, but a lot of us can, you know, not most of us are going out there and protesting with our, the protesters, which obviously, you know, power to them. I'm protesting in my own way by talking about it, by mm -hmm. trying to educate our, you know, mm -hmm. um, population and audience. Now, how do you see change going, you know, how can we go about real authentic change? Like, I know this is gonna be harder than, you know, we think because it's, the whole system is corrupt. Right. So how do you, you know, I know earlier on our, not earlier, but on our prior, our last podcast, mm -hmm. you did mention, I did ask about politics and do you feel like our, you know, black community should get involved more into politics? But again, is that, you know, that's just one part of it. You know, in schools, teachers that are teaching our children about racism, you know, there's so many different, there's so many different areas that would need to be wiped out. <laughs> and, and, and just we would have to reconstruct the system in, into a better... Like, how do you guys see that change coming about? Because it's a lot of work to get to be done, you know? It's, it's just a lot. But where do we start? You want to take that? <laughs> <laughs> we, we need a teacher here. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, if you just, I guess, take it from, you know, from an institutional standpoint, you look at our educational system, you know, ultimately there's an issue with the curriculum. Okay. So, you know, one area to address that is, you know, we need more representation on um, uh, curriculum committees so that we can have more influence on the types of resources that our children are provided or, you know, being used to be instructed. And I think we also do need more, um, we need more, this is kind of a tricky thing because, you know, we can have more, you know, um, minority educators, but if they're teaching the same materials, you kind of end up with the same results. So there mm -hmm. has to be a change there. Okay. And there are things that people can do on an individual level as an educator. You know, yes, you have this curriculum here, but you can bring in um, information to your students to help them better understand more about themselves, if that makes them sense. And this isn't just for black students, because yeah. ultimately this is also pertaining to, you know, students of all ethnic diversities, because yeah. we all kind of play a part in this picture. We can't just put the responsibility on the black community to fix racism. Mm. You know, mm. that's too, it's, 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 it's been too big of a burden. Yeah. And so, you know, definitely if you were to look at the educational standpoint, teachers can bring in, you know, information, can teach their, their students about, you know, the full aspects of American history, mm -hmm. both black and white, um, on an individual level. Um, and let me just say this. So, you know, I'm a social worker. Mm -hmm. So social work practice is on a micro. 
uh, meso and macro level practice. So micro, I'm a micro level practice practitioner. And so I, you know, counsel people that, you know, struggle with things like this. I've been receiving more calls about people that are particularly requesting to have a person of color um, as their therapist. And so I think definitely providing support in those ways can be helpful in helping to strengthen the community and strengthen people individually. Um, on a community level, I think it is important for more, you know, underrepresented racial groups to become politically involved. And Antonio can provide his perspective about, you know, very, you know, more effective ways to go about doing that. And then on a macro level, we have to have policy change. Hmm. You know, we have to have policy change because that's what's going to change people's behaviors hmm. eventually, if that makes sense. Yes. The beliefs part, that's going to take time, but the behaviors, making people accountable for their behaviors, we have to have that policy change. Definitely. Definitely. So, 400 years, huh? <laughs> <laughs> How do you fix 400 years? We, we've made some gains, obviously, since 1865. Mm -hmm. But we have a long way to go. And you've heard of, uh, well, race-neutral mm -hmm. policies. We are so far behind as a, as a group that we can't just create a, an education system that educates all kids equally. Hmm. We need more to bring our kids up to a place where they can now compete economically, you name it. So I know this is, in some circles, a dirty word, mm -hmm. but we have to look at what reparations could do to help bring black and brown people up to where the average white person is in this country. Hmm. At that point, then we can start to look at, okay, so if we educate all of our kids and give them all the same information, they all have an equal opportunity to succeed. Mm -hmm. But if we change that entire system today, mm -hmm. that still ain't going to happen for black and brown folk. Wow. We're too far behind, wow. generally speaking. Right? Mm -hmm. There are some of us who are doing well. Yes. That's not enough. The vast majority are not. Okay, so to kind of tie it in, you know, quickly, I wanted to mention this, but I think this is the perfect time to mention it. Wait a minute, I, you mean I want to have another hour to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> no, no, no. I, w I was going to address the June Juneteenth, right? Yes. Is that how I'm, I'm, my accent is extremely um, big, but I said big, but <laughs> yeah, it's strong. But I was saying Juneteenth, right? And yes. it's been 155 years since the emancipation of proclamation, you know, in Texas. You know, it's crazy how to say that slavery still was still happening here two years after they've mm -hmm. already signed it. But now there is this big, huge um, campaign on making this a holiday. And also people are of color are trying to come together and support each other's companies. Do you see that as being one of the changes that can kind of help us elevate you know, or try to at least change us and put um, black people in positions of, I want to say power, because when people think about money and wealth, they think power. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like supporting each other's businesses and, and trying to kind of advocate more on black, pouring into our black community businesses, is also going to be part of that change? What do you think about that? It, it will be part of that change. But again, it won't be enough. I'll be wow. honest with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, if you just look at the last 150 years, mm -hmm. And look at the protests. Yeah. The people will tell you where they are. Yeah. <laughs> How are they feeling? Oof. And, they, and there are still people who don't get it. Yeah. And may never get it. Okay. 
So when you talk about businesses, we know, for instance, they just spent trillions, literally trillions of dollars at the federal level, mm -hmm. mainly to prop up large corporations. And then when you look at the businesses, the small businesses that were able to take advantage of the PPP, I think is what they call it, mm -hmm. uh, you still look at minority businesses, black and brown businesses got less money, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we, st we, have we have a banking system problem, right? We, we, it is, again, when you build it to work, a it was working exactly the way it's supposed to, by the way. This is the way it's supposed to work. Hmm. Except we're saying now, uh-uh. We're not accepting this any longer. Right. That's the only difference. But it was designed to work exactly this way. So what we need is to have a, have a change in, in the design, how things work gotcha. in this country. Gotcha. And it, it is a heavy lift, but what are our options? Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for... Um, getting that a lot more clearer for us. And I think we do have a lot of work to do and it's going to, it's going to start with, you know, all of us in what we do individually in our lives and how we, you know, contribute to that change. Um, but we do have a challenge of the day, of challenge of the week. So point of view, we, it's sad to say we're coming to the end of this conversation, although I feel like we have so much more to talk about. Mm. But I love how you guys both um, eloquently um, educated us and gave us a lot more into, you know, the depth of the psychological trauma and, you know, into the, you know, the force policing, how can we see change? And I think these are conversations that we need to have more mm -hmm. so that we can kind of keep educating ourselves and other people. I know that there are some, you know, if you have white friends, you know, how can we help them kind of, you know, educate them as well? Because they are not taught, you know, they're not, they're not teaching, they're not hearing about that. They never see that. Some of them are kind of racism like race they're racist but they're blindly racist mm -hmm. so it's like they don't even realize that they're actually mm -hmm. racist because it's something that's also been passed down to them mm -hmm. so we have to also practice kind of like try to understand that if, if someone wants to learn mm -hmm. i want to also you know, that's my challenge of the week mm -hmm. is I, I wanted you guys to have the challenge of the week which i also will allow you to give us a challenge of the week. but my challenge of the week is that if you see someone that is not you know someone that looks like you or someone of color and it's a white person that wants to learn or someone else that wants to learn about racism. Sorry. <laughs> someone else that wants to learn and you don't just push them away. You know, you also educate them. If they're willing to learn, it's, that's the most important thing. You know, you educate them and make them understand what's going on and how they can also be a part of the change. Do you guys want to add to the challenge of the week? I do. So um, one challenge of the week that I would say is, is that I think it's important for people to be able to have a space. You mentioned, you know, being able to talk about it and have a space to be able to share how they feel or mm -hmm. to provide other people the space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, especially when it comes to internalizing how you feel mm -hmm. and being able to cope with it in a healthy way. And so I think we need to talk about these things so we can better understand each other. And I want to add to that um, challenge of the week for you. Yes. My challenge for your... Um, white listeners or listeners of other ethnicities, my challenge for them is to learn more about racism. Don't allow that to be, you know, in a sense, um, an African-American's, you know, responsibility because for a large part, you know, many of us have experienced, you know, discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so I know for myself, seeing a lot of the things that are happening is very triggering for me. Yeah. And so from a psychological standpoint, in addition to being a practitioner, you know, sometimes that's a lot. So I think that we all need to kind of share in this responsibility yes. of better understanding racism because this is everyone's America. De definitely. Mm -hmm.
Very well put. I love mm-hmm. it. And thank you guys. Mm-hmm. I am so grateful that you both agreed to do this. I mm-hmm. you don't know how, how much mm-hmm. yeah, I have so much gratitude right now. And I love that we're able to kind of freely share our thoughts. And for you guys listening, thank you so much for rocking with us still. And with this during this time, we're still in COVID time. So please make sure that you know you keep washing your hands and wear your mask when you're out right now. You know, we're in a safe space. We did wash our hands. We came in with a mask. So just so you're not <laughs> worried about what's going on um but yes guys try to you know rock with us keep listening keep sharing um do um like our page on instagram point of view podcast if you have any questions if you've um, done actively done a challenge of the weekend you would like to share it with us and share your experience please start sending your emails i would love to read some of those challenges or and how you've incorporated into your lifestyles and to kind of share it with our listeners to kind of see how um, you guys are growing in your daily lives thank you so much once again if you guys have any platforms that you would like your our listeners or our viewers to kind of um, find you on you can Go ahead and say it now. I don't know if you have Instagram, Facebook. We can go ahead and put it. I know you gave us your email last time. I don't really want folks to find me. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. We'll keep you in security. But what about you, Shaquita? I'm not as active on social media, but I need to to change that presence. But... um, We'll stay in touch. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Uh, definitely yeah. we'll stay in touch because I, yeah. I definitely will need you. <laughs> yeah. But once again, guys, thank you so much. Until next time, keep watching with us. It was the Point of View podcast with Obel. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Point of View with Obel and GV. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Be sure to reach out at us at thepointofview at gmail.com for any questions. You can also leave us feedback and comments as a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform.